I've, I've, it's so funny because like, I rarely get starstruck. I used to work in TV, but I'm feeling just the edge of starstruck right now. It's oh, just so on. strange. I know, I know. You would, I knew you would not be happy about it. But well, it's I mean, not. It's just, I'm just a guy. I know. It's, just, it's funny that what what did you do in TV? Oh, I was an editor for a television show. Ah, uh, I was a roadie for almost a decade. Yeah. Um, I guess I should start with explaining how I discovered you because it's kind of a funny story. So there was this dude I knew in Austin uh, who who is just the man. You'd love him. Um, <laughs> we both got into, like, conspiracy theories around the same time. And so he was like, I'm going to take you to get the best pork chop in Austin. I was like, okay. So we went, and over this $100 pork chop, he tells me, did you know that there's a wave on the moon? <laughs> I was like, no way. So I looked it up and I found your videos and I was like, that is some bizarre stuff right there. Um, <laughs> but like, what's crazy about it was I, I started with the Moonwave videos and I was just like mind blown. And then I discovered you had a podcast and I was shocked to discover that it was one of the best research podcasts I'd ever heard. And at the time I was listening to a lot of shows, but yours was the one that came with all the receipts. Um, well, it's, first of all, what's your friend name who took you out for the pork chop? His name's Jeff. So Jeff, uh, this is Crow. I've got to update you. Back in the day, I was convinced that the lunar wave was local to the moon and that it probably had something to do with equinoxes. Almost certainly neither of those things is true. If I could name it again, I would call it a firmament wave. It's been filmed in front of both Jupiter and Saturn. Um, so at the very least, you can see the wave across the ecliptic or the path of the, the luminaries. Um, so there's the update for Jeff. And I was going to say something else to what you said, but uh, the 80s are kicking in here. <laughs> well, yeah. So, I mean, so that would go with the idea that the, there is a dome above us and that space is actually water, correct? Well, I think it was 2016, I finally announced uh, that I truly suspect space would be better described as liquid. I couldn't go any further with my scope, so I came up with a thought experiment which involved language, and I decided that if there was important language that had gone out to most of the world with regard to space that had nautical language that I would make the announcement, of course, I picked the uh, the JFK we're going to the moon speech, which he actually did twice, I think. I think I used the Rice University one. I don't remember. But I mean, we set sail on this new ocean. It goes on and on. But old Werner von Braun decided to tell us the truth on his deathbed, right? He put a psalm that encodes 9-11, by the way. I think it's 119 or 191. Um, and he, that psalm tells you that the handiwork of God is shown by the firmament. So which is it, Werner? Did you shoot magical Saturn V rockets to the moon or is there a firmament there, buddy? I'll take the deathbed confession, I think. What's crazy to me is that this stuff that we're talking about right now to my audience is gonna sound absolutely off the wall. Um, <laughs> but the only reason I, I even like continue to listen to your show is because you guys show up for it and actually like, spend enough time verifying what it is that you're suggesting. And what I like about it is you guys don't go on there and just like start saying it's, it's flat. There's a dome. It's like, we've observed this <laughs> and this is our perspective. Um, 
and we're not going to fight you about it, but we'd like to suggest this. Well, it's ironic that, you know, we started this conversation that you were getting into conspiracy because we're, we're really not conspiratorial. Um, we, we pick up things, we lay down evidences and research, and I'm glad you used the word suggest because the truth is I have control of what I think is correct. I have no control of what anyone else does. So we are basically laying on the table other ways to consider things. That's basically how I would describe what we do. But there is, it's endless research. Matter of fact, it's a lifetime of research. Had I not read my whole life, I'm not sure how I would hold up my end because I mean, come on, what are we, five, almost 500 podcasts, I think. Um, you know, you'd just be saying the same thing over and over. Yeah, well, on, on the conspiracy thing, I have to admit I'm deflated with conspiracies at this point. Um, most of them are nonsense. Most of them are just people like making, making like wild claims about reality that they just can't prove and they don't do any research. They just find a meme on Reddit or 4chan and they're like, this is the <laughs> truth because it's the opposite. <laughs> well, that, there's the problem. They detect that there is a problem and then they leap to conclusions and other things. If they would just recognize that they've detected a problem and focus on what that problem is and apply a little common sense, um, it's a much more helpful world. Uh, right now, we've got people pushing simulation theory. Um, it goes on and on and on. It just, it never ends. But, um, you know, this, this happened to me. You know, when I, I shot the lunar wave on accident um, in September of 2012, now I held on, I was a webmaster at the time and I was not impressed with social media. I had a feeling that it was gonna just be one big censorship platform. So I held on to it for a year and I amassed all this other footage and people kept saying, oh man, you gotta set up YouTube. So I finally did after a year. Within 30 days of that lunar wave being published, the flat earth community just blew wide open and everyone was referencing the wave. I guess the main idea being, well, if we don't know everything we thought we knew about the moon, then what else do we know? So they start emailing me and I don't know what to make of it, you know? So I did what I do. I had some very, very good high quality optics. I went out and shot over 10 miles further than I was supposed to. So I came back and I said, well, the curvature model's wrong because I could see further than I'm supposed to. And that's how I tried to go at it. Um, I don't have to argue about that. I was there. I know what I did. I know what I saw. And so it's a foundational statement to make that's correct, um, provably correct. Well, this is going to sound kind of nuts. And I, I have I have a list of topics I want to get into. But of course, everything's going to sound a little bit nuts because we're testing new ideas. Right. So I saw that video and I was inspired to go buy or like co-buy with some friends a p1000 just to shoot the moon yeah so we did it and i haven't caught anything weird um but it is interesting how much your perspective changes just looking through a lens that can zoom in that far right that's right there it is the experiential it's it i i try to describe it as an experiential knowing now the problem with experiential knowing is it's not easy to, to bump the guy next to you and say hey you know, look what I know now, because it doesn't work that way. You get the experience and you get the intuition of whatever you're doing. But, you know, I tell people, if you do something like get a P900 or P1000 and you spend, say, an hour a day, it won't be long before you shoot something. But you got to realize I was putting in eight or more hours a night and then I was shooting in the daytime. I did this for just over five years, I think. 
Um, I put in time like you can't imagine. Had no idea how I was going to pay the rent. I had just quit working for corporations for good. Um, and I said, you know, if I'm going to be poor, at least I'm going to do something that's interesting to me. Hmm. Well, just to rope George in here for a little bit, because he is here, everybody. He's just stroking his beard <laughs> as usual. Um, so here, let me tell you, Crow, how I introduced George to you. I was like, he's like, uh, he's not really a conspiracy theorist. He's more like a researcher and he likes to actually do the experiments, like put the money, his money where his mouth is like, you know, buy an expensive camera and stare at the moon for years. And I said, and he's a podcaster and he goes by Crow and he might be in contact with like a 600 year old wizard. <laughs> I, I can confirm that was the pitch but what really got george what really got george was uh was the fact that you're not recently but you've you're a long time fan of the classics and i don't george, know what really got me was the picture of the crow with the microphone let's be real like i've i've been a long a long time fan of corvids so well a crow, you, a crow with a microphone i couldn't pass up well you're wise to have picked the smartest of birds um, exactly you know exactly. you can go on youtube and find them doing all kinds of things they shouldn't be able to do but that's it's ironic you say that i made i when i first started getting interviewed i think it was greg carlwood was the first guy to interview and i'm all why do you want to interview me it made no sense to me and for like a week he keeps saying and i go i don't know and so finally i did it it ended up being one of his most popular episodes at one point i'd been on i don't know like five times and i made since i don't appreciate cameras in my face um i tolerated it for shoot the moon for two hours for jason to put an hd camera in my face it feels like my soul is being stolen to be honest with you. i don't like cameras at me but um Carl would, you know, needed something. And I had made the the crow with a mic. That must have been like 2013 when I made that image. Well, that's a, I think it's I think it's a hilarious mascot. I mean, maybe you'd be interested in explaining why you selected the crow. So when I was finally talked into setting up my YouTube channel, kind of against my will, but kind of at the same time realizing I had a lot of things that were interesting that people would like to see. Um, we sat down and as I said, I, I have an IT degree, one of the first given in the country. And I was kind of a webmaster, just, you know, everything corporate online guy at one time, making sites, whatever. And we were trying to think of a name. And so my birth name works out so that each of the three names adds to seven, um, num you know, if you use basic numerology, but ever since email had come if you wanted to send me an email you wrote the word crow you know how you pre-populate you write a few letters so you would write crow when i was in corporate life to send me an email so we started to go with crow and then we realized there's crows here already so uh, we added the extra r which is also a play on my birth name so in short it is all a play on what i consider you know people are going to love this my slave name um, and the reason I'm saying such a controversial thing is because I'm now aware of what happens when you're born and the paperwork that's generated and what that means to us in the course of a lifetime. But I have to is, admit, I have to admit to you as a, a longtime fan, that stuff is it's beyond my pay grade. I don't understand what's going on there at all with the paperwork and stuff when we're born. I just know that there's something up. It's a little bit like the whole conspiracy conversation we were having earlier. I'm like, there's something weird happening there. I don't get it. And so it's, like, go ahead. Well, it, it's simple to break down, but 
for someone who's hearing it for the first time, they're just going to think that we've been chewing on the wrong peyote bush. Um, but it's confirmed. It's not. It's it's proven provably true. And I would say more about how I personally know that's correct. Uh, but I do draw a line between my personal existence and and what I do here. But basically, it's perverse. It is underhanded, and it relates exactly to the age of consent, which no one has ever really thought about. Why do they call it the age of consent? Well, you have the idea that you get to be this magical age of 18 and you can consent to things. Well, that's really not what it means. And by the way, you still can't vote. So how is that the age of consent? What it is, is an age where if you haven't pushed back against what they did on your birth, you're basically consenting to live the rest of your life under the system, basically the corporation they have set up. There's two sets of birth certificates when you're born. The one the doctor signs, which is the real deal, proves a living child was born. He witnesses it. But along the way, they take the afterbirth, the call, the placenta, what we would just typically call afterbirth. They weigh and measure it, and they create a straw man identity from that. I'm not kidding. Then when it goes to the state, uh, all the letters go to capital which is a throwback to Rome. Slaves used to be written in capital letters. Look at your driver's license. Uh, do you write your name that way? It's all in caps. But people hearing this will think that it's just bizarre and not possible. And it takes a lot more than a few minutes to, to show what's happened. Um, and it gets worse. You know, We've had guests on like KL and others who have historically gone through the timeline showing this is where we came off the gold standard. This is where a state of emergency was declared. It was never undeclared. Um, and this is way back. Um, so there, there's really a lot to it, but it's, it's not arguable. It is what it is, whether well, people think, choose to accept it. I think the, the, weird, the weirdest sounding stuff is just the stuff that takes the longest to cook. Like I like sitting back and like I've heard this I've heard this a couple times on your show and I've, I'm still like I'll get it someday I'll understand this at some point it's just not yet. Um, it, and that's it's just imagination, Aaron. It, it's just it's imagination, all of it. It's just made up paperwork. What's a corporation, right? Some guys get together and say we're going to create a corporation. We gave it a bogus name because we filed the fictitious name that we just made for this corporation. But at the end of the day, what does that corporation get? It gets granted the rights of a person. <laughs> so here's this thing with no breath. Uh, maybe the word tells us corpse oration. You know, the talking dead. But my point is, is, is it has no breath and it is given the rights of a person. So that's it's all just imaginary, legal beagle. You know man-made ideas it's what it is well speaking of ideas one thing that i've been hearing a lot on your show recently is that they're using the subconscious knowledge or the forgotten knowledge of the classics to create nonsense programs on the television would you like to talk about that a little bit well i guess i'd rephrase that a little bit um there was a time and for those who caught the show with fortune to saint germain who can actually remember that time um we uh covered the what a foundation of a real education was, maybe 20s, 30s. Um, and what's interesting is the high schools had 20 or 30 classics professors teaching Greek, Latin, and the classics as we know them to include myth. Um, and that was the foundation of learning at that time. As a matter of fact, math came distant. It, it was just structured differently, but the foundation was really classics and had been for a long time. So we might ask, well, what's so important about the classics? 
so if you look back, what we see in Greek myth is really their archetypes, right? And Jung and Freud told us how powerful an archetype is. And now, one an archetype. A, one of them did a much better job doing it, in my opinion. <laughs> there, there you go. People always play favorites. What I think is those gentlemen helped the powers that be learn how to hack the human mind with some of their things that they put on the table. And by they were they were both insiders with people like H.G. Wells. Um, we've covered Tavistock and other places that their whole gig is social programming. But to get back to the classics, these archetypes, if you want to be honest and you read them. It almost describes every single thing that could happen to a human being in one way or another. But it's been a bit defamed because we've been taught these are crazy gods. What were those crazy Greeks thinking back then? They think there's some white haired dude on top of a mountain called Olympic. So what I did is I reframed it. I said, consider the gods as aspects of nature and a personified aspect of nature written into a storyline. But what we found was, and I use CNN as the example, I was minding my own business one day and I was doing research and I came across baby Jessica down the well, which is what launched CNN into stratosphere. And I instantly recognized the archetype was Veritas down the well, truth down the well, an old Greek myth. The media beamed the story of baby Jessica and the man who rescued her to the world live. But Jessica's story had a happy ending or so everybody thought. Now we discover that what happened to the hero who rescued baby Jessica is a case study in the high price of fame. Here she comes. There's clapping. For three days in 1987, Jessica McClure was every American's baby. Robert O'Donnell, who crawled into an eight-inch pipe to rescue her, was America's favorite son. He was on Nightline. He met George Bush. He was on Oprah. He didn't go to Oprah. Oprah came to Midland. He was on the cover of Life magazine. He was inside People magazine. He won more awards than he could fit eventually on his resume. Fame came quickly, but it left in a flash. And eight years after America embraced him, Robert O'Donnell committed suicide. Fame had become the addiction he couldn't kick. And we broke it down in the episode. And then I began to realize this goes on and on. And what's interesting about it is when I came through school, the classics were all but gone. Any classics that I have in my possession on board is because I went and read the Iliad, the Odyssey, Greek, you know, everything I could get. I was interested in it. But what happens is these archetypes like, I'm assuming you like Jung better than, uh, than Freud. What these archetypes- <laughs> A good guess, a very good guess. Yeah, there you go. So he, he's an interesting man. The Red Book is an interesting book. Um, but what he showed was these archetypes are a bit subconscious, right? And even if you're not aware of the story the archetype is derived from, I don't know how to describe it. This is above my pay grade. Is it the world mind? Do we call it the mind stream of humanity? I don't know what we call it, but it has an effect. These archetypes are usable, like all tools in this world. And I guess, as far as I know, Freud and Jung were some of the first people to start to show the powers that be. Well, I think it makes... Mind. It makes perfect sense that um, at this point in time, they would have been in many cases excised from the uh, sort of expected training you would have. Because if you go back to what it, the classics were sort of the content by which the, stu the studia liberalia, you know, the liberal arts were conveyed and the liberal arts, that is the arts that are liberales, that is pertaining to or fitting to free people. That's not something you need anymore now that a sort of a very high level of personal 
social and intellectual control has been established over people. You don't want them having the uh, the sort of the studies that are pertaining to free people. That's that's a dangerous thing to be giving too many people now. So I assume you're kind of referring in an offhand way to like the fifth century of Athens, right, where there was supposedly this golden age for the first time there have been freedoms and things like this. Um, you know, I don't make a call either way. What I do say is everybody should learn the classics. You should read the Greek myths. You should comprehend at least the basic main characters that are recurring. You should comprehend how that was translated by the Romans into Roman ideas. You should grab the Iliad, the Odyssey. You want my opinion on Ovid and, and Virgil? Those were whipping boys for the Roman Empire to make Rome seem better, you know, that to, to hook Rome to the heroes, you know, Troy. They want to get that connection that, oh, Rome sprung, sprung from Troy. And it seems to me that those writings, but you want to know something? We've taken a shot at metamorphosis. And the programming we see in the world now uh, is one-to-one. -one. We found so many parallels looking back on metamorphosis, which means what? Change. Where are we now in the world? I mean, we just came through two years where someone snapped their finger without ever changing a law and locked people in their houses all over the world, you know? It's a, it's a strange new era. And I submit to you that people who are aware of the classics have at least some more tools on board to deal with what's around them socially. And what do you think about, about history as well? Should that be taught right alongside the classics? What do, what do you think about history as a category at this point? In your it's so problematic because how do you have an intelligent conversation with people if you don't have some grasp, basic grasp of history. But I say regularly on my show what Napoleon told me, history is a fable agreed upon. History is a lie agreed upon. It is. Um, it, with the more you go back and focus on historical things, um, you begin to see problems. But what's more is if you logically break it down, you begin to realize, well, the guys who won probably wrote this history. So it's really only half the story, if that. Um, so history is problematic. But uh, I mean, the three of us know, how do we have an intelligent conversation if we want to talk about the Renaissance without including the textbook mainstream ideas of history? It'd be very difficult to do without it. Right, because I got to a point in my research for, you know, the show George and I do, which is a history podcast. I got to a point where I'm like, I feel like World War II might have just been a movie. And the only reason <laughs> I feel like that, the only reason Bravo. I can feel like that is because it's like, I only know a few people who were alive during that time and everything else I know about it came from a television screen or a book. Bra bravo. Um, bravo, bravo. I knew a lot of people who were there. My grandparents... My, my dad's father was there uh, in the Navy. My mom, after my father passed away, my mom, she kind of, I guess, call him a boyfriend. They went out dancing. He, he died three years ago. One of the oldest last World War II vets said he was there at Iwo Jima with the fake flag raising that I was taught about when I was in the Marine Corps during the first Gulf War. It is, it is a damn movie. That iconic flag raising, that's a staged event. We took apart Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and this is where the problem starts, because people want to accept what they've been told. But the minute you dig in, it's problem after problem, and pretty soon you find out there was one AP reporter from the U.S., the only one allowed in to report on it. You got that perspective from one guy, and if you do the history on that guy, guess what? Insider baseball. So the narrative that you got was a controlled narrative. So bravo to what you said. How do you differentiate a controlled narrative 
from it's a movie or TV. You really can't. What's the difference between writing a script and then controlling a situation so one person that you've hired with an agenda goes in to cover it, right? What is the difference? I don't know. That's, you know, my background as a, as a filmmaker and a media guy, that's where that comes in and conflicts with a lot of like history people um, because they're like, well, it was written this way and this is the way it is. And there's research and, and there's journals and stuff that came from that time that proved that this happened this way. And I'm like, yes, but the narrative is separate from what happened. Does that make sense? Well, it's um, a good observation. I mean, that's a key observation because if I was just to take what you said and then launch into looking into a thing based on that idea, I would probably immediately begin to find the stumbling blocks where things don't add up and this isn't logical. And the more you know, and the people emerge, then you start looking into the people. I mean, Napoleon wasn't far wrong, was he? You know, uh, history does get written by the victors, right? They write the textbooks. That's half a story at best. And it's probably not a true story because they probably have an agenda as they write down their half of the story. Um, I don't know. It's a tough, it's a tough, road to hoe. That's all I know. We, we've got to have a, a historical basis to have intelligent conversation. But at the same time, we know that it's been delivered in a in a way that the people who wrote it wanted it delivered. Well, Crow, actually, one thing that we came across on our show was that there's usually more than two sides to any story. I mean, the That's classic fine. example is the Hatfield and the McCoy situation. Nobody knows there was a third family involved in that whole thing that actually explains just about everything that went on in that story. Including me. You just right. told me a thing I don't know. So, I mean, that's a valid point. Right. And, and it's, you know, it's, I'm, I'm even causing the same trouble by saying there's two points of view and you're correcting me. Well, you don't know how many points of view there might be. There might be five, ten. Who knows? Mm -hmm. uh, George, did you want to offer any perspective? Do you have any questions? I'm not not quite ready to dive back in. Not yet. quite ready. He likes to ruminate for a minute before he before he really gets intense. So, um, I, oh, George needs a pipe, like a, you know, like a Sherlock Holmes pipe. That would be perfect. You freaking called it. He taught me how to smoke a pipe in college. <laughs> there it is. Now it's coming to the surface. Jorge yep. Curioso. <laughs> yep. Jorge Curioso. That's your new nickname, George. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. So I think what's crazy about this crow is that there's there's so many doorways into seeking out the truth these days that it's almost it's almost impossible to estimate how many ways you can get into a zone where you're like I don't buy that like let me see that for me it was it was history it was learning how tele the television and the internet lies to you um, and my generation or George and I's generation. We grew up in a time when we were just really generationally beginning to understand that the box could lie to you. And my parents, for example, the older generation, they grew up not even not even like right. even able to conceptualize that it could lie. Yep. They just trusted it and it went off when, you know, when the day was over and that sort of thing. And that was it. Um, what's your perspective on the generational difference uh, differences in media literacy? You know, World programming, social programming, which I've covered it back to the Frankfurt School, the predecessor of Tavistock. And when you begin to get into these things, it'll blow your mind because you don't want to admit that there's such underhanded powers in the world that are just clearly up to things that are not helpful. What I noticed is my grandparents loved America. My parents loved America. And why was that? Well, part of it was they were portrayed as the white knight in World War II, right? They saved the whole world. 
from having to goose step. And they did, you know, these, it was the best. We had the best cars. We made the best stuff. We made the best movies. Everything American was just great. And it never occurred to them to question much more than that. And that bled into my parents' generation. And by the end of my dad's life, he was beginning to question things because he was into politics and the presidential thing. He began to realize, wait a minute, there's something foul here. Um, but my generation, uh, it's gone, you know, it's 360 now. Nobody believes anything mm. pretty much. And if you do, you're kind of in a daydream. What we find is that the older people who stay glued to Fox and CNN, um, they accept most of the narratives. And the people who have caught on that that box has an agenda and it's being used to socially program. Like one of my friends that I interviewed had a lot to do with like the Mennonite communities like that. And he went in there one day, he used to trade with them and do other things. <clears throat> he asked one of the elders, how come COVID has not affected your community? The guy looked him in the eye and he said, because we don't have TV. Hmm. You know, and so that really kind of summed it up for me. Hmm. Yeah, no, I that was how I was. So, I, okay, so this is going to be a broken record for the for the listeners. But I just told Jason last week there wasn't any COVID nineteen at nighttime because dur after I got furloughed and when I was brought back to my job, I was working night shift from ten to six. Didn't exist. There was nothing going on at night. Nobody wore any masks. Nobody ever went for any of it. But when day shift showed up the next day, everybody put their masks on except for me, of course, <laughs> everybody put their mask on because the day shift people were scared shitless. And I, if they came in and we weren't wearing them, they would freak out and report us to HR. Yeah, fear is the enemy of knowing. And fear was a big driver of that whole thing. But anyone who wants to step back and remember that we are a nation of laws, that we have three branches of government that make laws, that a president cannot dictate a same, single damn thing to the people, nor can a governor. They can dictate to their staffs, but they cannot dictate to the people. That would be a dictatorship if anyone wants to think. And those three branches of government never made a law. And so I got thrown out of endless places because I remember that my breath is my spirit granted to me by the creator. I will not veil that for any person ever, not doing it. My breath is my spirit and I control that and it's not yours to play with. So I'm getting thrown out of places and I would say, well, where's your authority to throw me out? And they'd go in this bizarre loop that always end up with the word mandate. And I would say a mandate is not a law. We have a legislature. We have three branches of government. Show me the law that gives you the authority to do what you're doing. And they can't. So then every time the word CDC would get spoken. I would look them in the eyes and I would say the CDC is a corporation, not a governing body. Where is your authority to be doing this? And nonetheless, endless people did it. Nonetheless, endless people forgot that we, what supposedly made us great is that we were a nation of laws. Um, it's a hell of a thing to look at. It's one of the hardest things in my lifetime that I have to look at and deal with because that damage, I don't know if that damage ever gets undone. As a matter of fact, I guess I don't think it does. I think the train wreck has happened and we're just waiting for a body count, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's how I felt the day it started. I was like, you can't unring this bell. No. You're going to see people in masks for the rest of their life. And people were calling it the new normal, the new normal, as if nothing would ever change. And I just remember being like, this programming is so deadly. Um, the irresponsibility of the people in charge of the media. Um, it was like, wow, we just gave like, 
a, a handgun to a two-year-old. In Bolivia, morgues in the city of La Paz are filled to capacity as bodies of COVID-19 victims have been left uncollected in an open-air spot near a local chapel. A police officer cited residents' fear of contracting the virus. Yeah, you want to know what the word mandate means? Look at the media. They were given a mandate. They were given a mandate to skew and program according to a very narrow overarching body. We've done shows to show how many major corporations are left in the world. Jason thinks it's about five. I think it's actually about two. Doesn't matter. All the board members and officers are in overarching organizations like the Club of Rome, like the Trilateral Commission. Very few people remember that Jimmy Carter, remember the weenie? Bad president who couldn't get anything done. He stacked the federal government with more trilateral commission members than had ever been done. They have each one been playing to the same agenda with a different flavor and a different color. I want to talk about archetypes, the red and blue mind spell, I call it. So I had finally had enough and I went back to show the roots of how we got red and blue. And it came from the governor of the Central Bank of England. Um, Montague Norman, I think is his name, in 1924 came to this country, gave a verbatim speech to the bankers of this country that said, guess what, guys, we have the left and right political thing in place now. Now we can get people to fight about stuff that doesn't matter while we bankers take over the world. He says it in plain English. And I ask everyone, why are you still involved in this red and blue mind spell? You show me the president in my lifetime. And I'm not young. I was born in 63. I am not young. Show me the one that was the big, you know, benefited us, made things better. It's been a constant fall in my lifetime, a constant deterioration uh, from every angle. And why is that? Well, it's because there's an agenda. Why did we do COVID? Why, why has America been basically dismantled? Why did people close their businesses when that was their livelihood, when there wasn't a single law that said they needed to do it? Why did the police enforce things that weren't legal? Um, it's an agenda from above. And why are they doing it? Uh, you know, as we went to the end of 2019, there was this news piece that came out. And I don't watch the news, but I became aware of it. I don't remember what they claimed, 200 or 300 major CEOs changed seats. And they were saying, this is more than ever has been. And I, the, the moment I heard it, I knew. Because a year before, I had said, from this point forward, when you see two major corporations merge together, you're looking at the push for one world governance. And so as I saw that, I started to say to people, how the hell? But what's interesting is I went back the other day with my friend Fortune, because he didn't remember that. And I showed him, and I'm trying to find the magic number, 250 or whatever they were claiming the seats changed. It was something like 1,300 everywhere. They took the top seats, and they put the people in that are going to play baseball. It's that simple. It's what they did. And these corporations are a bit like a cancer, because in our world, the governments do not have all the power, all the money, all the anything. Now it's about Amazon. Now it's about Google. We live in a world now where if I ask you guys, what's king in the world right now? Now, if I asked you in 98, I'm pretty sure you'd say money. And I'm pretty sure I'd agree with you. Sometime around the year 2000, money quit being king. Data became king. Hmm. And in that world, there's a dangerous future because of what can be done with data. And that is a whole, that is one of the most important things of our time. I, and what's 
what's infuriating about it is the people taking your data are basically just giving you an underhanded wink. They're saying, look at all these cool free things you can get. By the way, we're taking your data, but we're not really going to admit we're taking your data, but we're taking your data. So you use all these cool things. Well, I set out to find out about it. So I initiated a thing where I contacted all the major data purveyors and collectors. And I said one simple thing, quit collecting my data, delete the data you have, and don't sell my data anymore. You know what each one of them did? They bent over backwards, realizing that this is a house of cards. Who owns my data? Who owns my name? What gives you the right to do any of this? I didn't get a single response from any of them. There are 70 some now that have been contacted. I think I've got another 30 or so to go. Not a single one of them said, screw you. Not a single one of them made it hard. They all said, we've received your complaint and we are on it. That's mm. how this world works. Lazy, entertained bread and circus is what brings us to where we are. Hmm. Well, and is it is it easy to sit down and contact? No, it's not. But the point is, there it is right there in your face. And if I told you the power of data, you'd realize why this matters. But that's that's quite an explanation. Well, I'd like to point out to to our listeners, uh, Crow put literally put his money where his mouth is. He he went to the bank to put back the Trump bucks. <laughs> they said they sent him a stimulus, a stimulus check and he got rid of it. Trump bucks my butt here. Let me tell the story. <laughs> yeah. His signature was on it, but I get this bizarre paper with no heading, no seal. And it says white house, not the white house, not the white house with the seal for the white house. It says white house. And then Donald Trump's signature is under it. And then it came from a place called MetaBank. And I'm all, what the hell's MetaBank? So I go marching up to my bank and I say, get this damn money out of my account. Nothing's done for free. There's strings attached to this money. I don't know what they're getting me to agree to, but I don't agree. And they said, well, we can't do that. I said, give me the manager right now. And I looked the manager dead in the face and I said, is this my bank account? And he said, yes. I said, I gave nobody permission to access my bank account. Get it the hell out. Two weeks later, get a notice. We took the money out. Well, this happens two more times. The second time I go back up, oh, we can't do that. We don't know how to do that. And so I brought my paperwork. I said, oh, yes, you do. We did this a while ago. Here it is. And so then I'm waiting two, three weeks and I get a note from the IRS. Clearly your bank account has been <laughs> hacked or something like that. So we're going to have to investigate. I'm not even kidding you. And eventually they take the money out. The third time they notify me that they put like 600 bucks in but when we went to find it, go look for it, it wasn't there. So I think they'd already caught on. And the first time when I did this, I got a letter back from, I think it was the RS saying, clearly we've made a mistake. There was the writing on the wall. I called them out. I said, get your damn dirty ass money out of my account. And they wrote me back saying, clearly we have made a mistake. Meanwhile, they're making this mistake with every living human being in the country. Unreal. It's unbelievable. Um... I never got anything actually. So I never had to deal with the conundrum. Good for you. Yeah. Clean. I don't know what I did. <laughs> How does it feel to be clean? Good on you. I, I don't know what happened. Like they just never ever sent me a check or anything like that. And I was just, I mean, I was almost dead broke, but thank God I had my parents who were, you know, allowing me to live in the basement. <laughs> well, um, I mean, that's not laughable. This is the wealth stripping is everywhere. Fortune absolutely. talks about the wealth stripping. He was the first guy to do it like 
a year or more before we had any idea of it. Um, this is serious business. If people don't recognize that they're going for one world corporation, one world governance, then you better wake up because that's where this wants to go. They want to go to complete digital currency so they can control every payment ever made. They want to go to UBI, universal basic income, because that is the ultimate form of control. You don't do what we say, you don't get your paycheck, you don't get your bread this month. And by the way, the digital dollar from the Federal Reserve, and I'll ask a question, does the Federal Reserve ever tolerate competition? Let's just ask the question. So the digital dollar from the Fed in their white paper, two things punched me in the nose. One of them is you will not be able to have a savings account with the digital dollar. The other one is you can't inherit your money to your family. That's where digital money wants to go. And have you seen this this uh, this money with an expiration date in China? I don't know if that's a conspiracy theory, but it certainly looks like something that- No, that's- the... So what you're looking at, China is gonna fast track everything they wanna do here. You've got to realize that all the technology China possesses that took over their part of the world with social social controls and ratings was given to them at a picnic in Silicon Valley in the summer of 97. All of a sudden they had a Facebook um, that was based on the Facebook here. No one ever sued them, but their Facebook is everything. On their Facebook, your hospital, your police, your everything. And so what they did is they fast-tracked it into a communist country. You know, that's another reason to learn the Greeks. And I'm not I'm, what I'm about to say is not a job. I love Asia, particularly I love Japan. Spent time there when I was in the Marine Corps. Socrates, I think it was, was he the first? Socrates, I think he was the first. I don't remember. But anyhow, Socrates or one of the other three big names said that, look what's gone on here in Athens. We, we are the first people to have this idea of freedom and he's touting all that. And he says, we're constantly under threat from the East. Well, that finally happens in the story of the 300, right? They're attacked from basically the Asia, the Orient, they used to call it. And finally that happens. But what he said was those people have no conception of freedom. They don't even know how to consider that it might exist. And all this time forward, look what's going on in China. They, they're under, I guess they're going to call it communism. And they fast track all the things that are coming here and, and money with an expiration date. That's what digital money is for. You can't have a savings account under the federal digital dollar because it expires. So you have this much money, you got to spend it by this date. There is no saving. They're just doing an earlier version of where they want it to be here. It's crazy. George, what's your opinion on the Antichrist? <laughs> <laughs> I was still thinking back to what I did with my Trump bucks. I, I got a paper check. And I immediately cashed it and then immediately gave that cash to a man in a parking lot of a tractor supply in exchange for guns. <laughs> Send lawyers, guns, and money. This shit has hit the fan. <laughs> Thank you, Warren Zevon. People George, do you have do you have any thoughts going forward? I mean, dude, this this crow is just laying stuff down here. Well, yeah, I was, um, I'm sorry. I've, you know me. Whenever anything historical gets uh, gets brought up, my mind kind of sort of stops on that for a while. And yeah, no, you're absolutely right with the the conception um, of the East as a distinctly different paradigm than that which you would have in the West. Which, of course, for 
for a large period of history, just based on the literature we have, means basically Athens. But yeah, the East is a place associated with despotism and the lack of any kind of uh, conscious volition. Like you said, I think you put it really well. Yeah, they don't even know what what freedom is. And that that's a long, long running thing through history. So for example, the um, the conflation of rulers with gods is a distinctly Eastern thing all through history. Um, even once the East is, uh, you know, mostly conquered in the Roman Empire, when it's ruling West and East, you can actually see this in the differences in their own religion. In the East, the imperial cult is pretty much directly just the worship of the emperor, because that's how they're used to that paradigm of their rulers being divine. In the West, where we don't have that paradigm, there's a, there's a lot of sort of hedging around it in Roman times, where they worship the essence of the emperor is sort of a, a divine force that he has, you know, connection with personally, but we don't worship the emperor because that's, that would not be something free people would do. They would not worship their ruler, but in the East, so you have sort of the exact same religion, but applied very differently in the West and the East based on the fact that there was a tradition in the West of this freedom and a tradition that society is made up of free individuals and that rulers are not sort of uh, metaphysically superior to those they rule. So glad you said it, George. I'm going to give you a book recommendation. If you ever have time and an interest, I found I stumbled on a book. Well, actually, a, a follower had sent it to me. And in the very front of it, it said, this book hasn't been published in forever, but we've kept it alive because um, smart men um, you know, the scientists and, and the his, you know, the history folks said this is an important text to save. It's called The Worship of Augustus Caesar, which will echo exactly what you said and then corresponded up to the time of Caesar and Augustus. We both kind of know the claims there. Was Caesar deified after death? The claim in that book is that Augustus was, and he proves it from his point of view in a lot of different ways to include marvels that have been censored, but I think you might get a kick out of that book. The reason I like it is because of the astronomical cycles and the references to the older Oriental or Asian cultures to include Hinduism uh, that have been tracking time apparently a lot longer than, than our side of the world. If that's true, I don't know, but that's the perception. And by the way, the first check I got was mailed to me too. I have it in my drawer. I'm gonna hang it <laughs> on my wall so the next generation can see what they did to us. Well, I, I'm proud to say I still have no checks, <laughs> but I don't know. Again, I don't know why somehow I slipped through the cracks or they were just like, not you, though. <laughs> well, it's insidious because a lot of people were broke. The oh, wealth yeah. stripping had already been going on. So to to do that, to to steal the the you know, the ability to pay your bills through conniving and social programming and then offer free money, that's that's underhanded as it gets, man. Yeah, that's pretty bad. I mean, this whole thing is pretty bad, to say the least. It's um, not the worst of it. I'm hearing that they're going to try to come. And I, I have people that I know in the world that I never would have met in my normal walk of life had I not been doing this for so long. You meet so many people. The claim is, is that they're planning a wave of lockdowns that are environmental because of global warming ideas. Not even kidding you. Didn't they just do this in Britain? don't know i felt i felt like i saw a story about this the other day they had like different sections of the country or maybe it was a city where they were testing uh environmental lockdowns and what's crazy is like 
you know, here's here's a funny thing about me is like I really, really care about the environment and nature and that sort of thing. I think it's really important to preserve what we've been given or blessed with, you might say, here on this planet. But I also am not convinced by the whole climate narrative because I see it as a potential vector for control. And that's exactly what it appears to be being used for. The fight against this terrible pandemic provides, if ever one was needed, a crystal clear example of the scale and sheer speed at which the global community can tackle crises when we combine political will with business ingenuity and public mobilization. Ladies and gentlemen, we are doing it for the pandemic. So if you don't mind me saying so, we must also do it for the planet. It's poppycock. Look at the man who brought it to us, who mainstreamed it. Wasn't it Al Gore back in the day? Uh, what's politics for? Oh, yeah, let's go ask Norma Montague, the governor of the Central Bank of England. Um, but the main point I would make here is that I say all the time that if you want, I, I get stuck. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to figure out a problem. But I know one thing, certainly, if I learn a thing in nature, I have not been lied to. There is no lie in nature. I know another thing, that that is the creation. And it doesn't stop a hundred feet above my head, everything I can see is part of this creation of which originally I was made a beneficiary. And that's part of the game that's been played here to get you separated from nature. That's why we have words like pagan, right? What's pagan mean? Well, it's a person who's close to nature, right? They, they have to separate you from the creation to begin to try to control you. There is no lie in nature. It is the most precious thing we have. You will never be lied to by nature. And that is a foundational premise of my existence. And so when we forget these things, we get wrapped up in the synthetic systems, which is primarily what you know, much of what we've been talking about. These are man-made things, right? Men lie. Men have agendas. And powerful men, well, we all know power corrupts and absolute power. Well, what are we looking at here? We're looking at corruption at a very high level. So anyone who would volunteer for any kind of a lockdown is basically reflecting what Socrates said about Asia. You have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten the value of freedom. You have forgotten that supposedly the West was built on laws. You have forgotten just about everything because you've been scared. You're like a little kid in a dark room and someone has said boo to you and now you've lost your damn mind and you can't make a decision to rub two brain synapses together with. Mm. And fear, fear sort of stupefies us in a way. Yeah. Um, by, but by design. There's, there's a lot you said there that just, it just sent me spinning. So yesterday I went on a hike and I looked down and there's, you know, I'm the only person at this trail. Nobody's out hiking. It's December, right? It's like, it's cold. There's no snow on the ground, but I look down and I see this, this uh, pheasant feather and I pick it up. I'm like, how cool is that? Like, look, it's like super long. It's got stripes on it. And, uh, I look up and there's this thing standing in the path and it's a pheasant. <laughs> I'm like, this is so cool. Like there's a, there's a pheasant like right there. And so it runs out of the way because I'm walking and I go along and I, I hear one of them like calling out to the others. And then the others are responding from a distance and they're trying to find each other. And it's so funny you say there is no lie in nature is because that's what popped into my head immediately was like, oh, yeah, they're telling the truth. It's like, I'm over here. We're over here. We're trying to find each other. And it just last night I was just like thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, it, it, it's I've listened to you for so long, but never was I like, I need to reach out and have Crow on my show. But now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, all the people I've had on my show recently have been people who speak the same language. 
we're just not going to tell bullshit to each other, right? It's kind of like that pheasant calling out to his to his buddies, like, get over here. <laughs> you know, you know um, it's, it's interesting when you go down this road, because like for me, I'm very analytical and I value the creation that I was made beneficiary of higher than everything. And I also consider it the measure for all common sense, um, which often gets left out of decision making these days. Uh, on my podcast, I have basic idea that if I can offer anything, common sense, compassion, respect for all living things, um, these are the basics. And then to value the creation and comprehend that it is the measure of all things that truly exist in this kind of illusory place we are. Um, but when you when you consider things about nature, like for me, it's hard. Well, why the hell do we need a mosquito? Right. What, what the hell is this tick doing on my dog? What is the value of, but you see it's here. It was placed here. It has a function here. And whether or not I like what a rattlesnake or a tick does, nonetheless, it is part of the creation and it serves a function or it wouldn't be here. Um, there, there is no extraneous nonsense. And if there is it, you know, if we get to a time where things have changed enough, then those things cycle out um, and they won't be here anymore if they don't serve their purpose. But look at us. What purpose of, I sometimes think that if this COVID nonsense had never happened, that we couldn't kept, we couldn't have kept on the trail we were, what were we doing? There's no culture here for the most part. We watch TV and we watch movies. That's our culture now, basically is entertainment. What are we making that's bettering the world? What are we doing? You know, these things have been diminishing. So if COVID never happened, could we have continued on the way we were and Kind of feels to me like, you know, we can't know the answer, but there has to be a reckoning point. And maybe the powers that be comprehended that there's a reckoning point. Maybe they knew we're at the end of some magical cosmic cycle um, that apparently the East used to be so big on. Comprehending. Don't worry, we, we only have like 4 billion years left in the Kali Yuga. Yeah, th there it is. But, <laughs> but how many cycles will end in the course of that? And how many times will we be in the Iron Age or at the bottom of the wheel? Um, I see what you're saying. But the, the main point is, is these are useful tools to deal with the nonsense. If you value and recognize the creation for what it is, you're better equipped to put up with some nonsense from your local city council or your local blue or red made up government who fakes like it's here to help you. Um, they're, they're co-opted, all of them. Your, your city council is a freaking corporation. So are your police. If you don't believe me, go look them up on Broad Street and Dunn. That's where they list all the corporations. That's how far we've come, which means that they are basically, for the most part, much of the time, enforcing corporate policy. Well, what does corporate policy have to do with me? Well, that goes back to the whole birth certificate thing that I was talking about. The point is we need a dead reckoning now. People who are gonna make it through this, and a lot will not, I imagine, um, are gonna have to recognize the value of the creation, what, what we were granted. We were granted the divine spark of life. We were granted free will. That is huge to be granted free will and creative power comes with that. And lastly, we were made beneficiaries of this creation which your birth certificate and other things have worked mightily to subjugate. But now is the time. We have to get back. Could we go 100 years of misery? I imagine we could. Um, could we end this in a year? I imagine we could. But together, we have to do this. Just because I think a thing is not relevant to everybody. Everybody has to come to common cause at some level. 
to say, hey, we've had enough here. Yeah. If, uh, George, were you going to say something? I can say, have you perchance um, read the book Dead Souls by um, Nikolai Gogol? I haven't. So it's a it's a novel. It's a 19th century Russian novel, but it's unfortunately unfinished. It actually ends mid-sentence because the author died. But oh, wow. it's um it's about a guy who is going around and buying dead souls, which are um the legal. This is before serfdom was abolished in Russia. And so he's buying the rights to serfs that are already dead and don't so that you know they don't exist but he has this it's never quite all worked out because the book wasn't finished but he's more or less it's all about him trying to marry this woman he wants to marry and he's trying to legally on paper have enough serfs that he quali that he sort of qualifies as a a certain level of landed gentry and will then be in a social position to marry her but all this all this talk about the sort of the the fakeness of the identity you know of the the birth certificate stuff the fake identities and whatnot. Uh, yeah, just sort of brought that to my mind, this idea of a guy going around and literally buying the rights to the labor of people who don't actually exist in order to get into a higher position in society. Can you put the name of that book in the chat, George, if you get a minute? Um, I'm loving it because he's obviously playing on the idea that I've been expressing with our birth certificates. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's fascinating. And I love that he did it as a novel because a novel can say whatever it wants and not be questioned as controversial or whatever, right? What what was it that Elon said? It looks so fake, you know it's real. Wasn't that his little? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or maybe the fake Paul McCartney uh, with Billy's back. Well, this is a fiction book because we couldn't tell the truth in a book that wasn't fiction. Isn't that crazy, Crow, how you can get away with saying the truth if you just put it in a story? It's See, this is the world we live in. Would you show me the common sense in that? How about this? A man stands behind his word or a woman stands behind her word. But no, we make all these constructs, fiction, corporation, all these workarounds to try to take the ownness off the individual. And, you know, while we are all individuals, from my personal point of view, we're all connected. I, I like to use the example, the Buddha gate, sitting there one day watching a farmer plow the field and he upturns a worm and a bird comes flying down and grabs the worm and he has the epiphany all at once. Wait a minute. All life is connected here. What I do will affect others. What others do will affect me. Um, that's how I choose to accept we are. And that's part of the reason all this programming has worked so beautifully because the majority have remained afraid, afraid to stand up for their birthright, basically, scared to that level, or disillusioned or filled with enough terrible chemicals or Lord knows, hmm. drank that, enough polluted water. Yeah. Is that part of why you started your podcast? When I was young, nothing seemed right to me. And I thought I was weird. And my father was probably among the smartest men I ever knew. And I'm adopted. So I was very fortunate to have been adopted by the parents who raised me. And at some point I got old enough to realize that it's not my problem here. I can see the issues, but you know, in your thirties, are you going to stand up against the world? No, not really. And when you get old enough to have a, maybe a modicum of wisdom, not that I have much, um, you begin to realize that you can offer an alternative point of view and if your light is bright enough, maybe others will light their candle off it. Maybe they'll light some more candles off their candle. But that's about what you can do. 
And the difference to me is what's going on in the world is, is done with a bad heart. What I do mm. is done with a pure heart. I truly want to leave this place better than I found it. I truly want to push back for the rights that I feel we were granted by the creator to be here. Um, that's the difference. And I think that's a lot of what people detect because when you turn on the television, let me tell you something, ain't no good hearts coming through that speaker box. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why I think you're able to walk in so many different circles is because that purity of heart is detectable. Um, you know, people, you know, when we do our show, like from the beginning, like we weren't the same people we are now, like me and George and George joined up halfway through, you know, I had an old co-host who walked on us. Um, rest in peace, rest in peace. <laughs> but, uh, you know, never once doing the show was I like, I'm going to give people a, a hard time or tell them a lie or twist this story so that it's something that I want it to be. I mean, you can't keep personal bias out of it, but that's different from constructing a narrative that's advantageous or disadvantageous to your listeners. Um, it was more about, I want to get to the bottom of this. And, you know, when we do episodes now where we're interviewing people who would otherwise be considered black sheep like Miguel Connor or Howdy McCoskey or Mark Steves, they give us the benefit of the doubt because I've shown with my show for five years that we're not trying to lie to you and we're not trying to manipulate you. We're just a couple of guys who want to get to the bottom of some things. And I think that's why even with, and I don't take, please don't take this as a slight, even with some of your more out there episodes, I still sit and I listen to the entire thing because I'm like, there's probably something here I can't see. I trust Crow. I don't believe in Crow. I trust Crow because he's shown to me over and over again that he's going to be sufficiently critical of the ideas that are coming across. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would just add that everyone should try to poke holes in the things they hear. I do it. Someone tells me something, I don't give a damn if they're the highest paid CEO in the world. The moment being faced with new information, I have tried to describe as being drugged to the crossroad. The moment new information is thrust at you, you have no damn choice. You have been co-opted. That information source has tapped you. You can't get out of it. You can ignore it, but that's a choice. You can turn left, you can turn right, you can go forward, you can go back, or you can sit on your butt till you die. There's five options when you get new information. The problem with new information is that most people get so much of it these days, they just accept it, right? They just let it fall in their pocket. And so you have to, you have to either say, I'm, I didn't hear that, that's not in my mind and mean it, or you have to say, is this real? If you don't have time, you need to set it in your back pocket and say, maybe there will come a time later when I can figure out whether this is valid. But to just accept, you know, belief is truly the enemy of knowing. And social programming relies on two things, belief and fear. And in a way, fear is belief because you're not going to be afraid if you don't believe the threat is real. And so this world we've come to if you are standing there smiling, minding your own business, you are doing everyone a disservice. We are at a critical junction. There are about to be a buttload fewer people in this world. And if the, if the research I did with Jason is correct, and I think it is, to the best of my ability, population for most places has been falling since the 70s. So Melinda and I wondered whether providing new medicines and keeping children alive, would that create more of a population problem? What we found out is that as health improves, 
families choose to have less children. And this effect is very, very dramatic. We find that in every country of the world, this is repeated. The population growth goes down as we improve health. So we've taken that chart that shows the global population growth, and we've actually extended it out all the way to 2100. And we can see that instead of continuing, it actually flattens out. Another way to see that is through this rate of population growth. And you can see that in the 60s, that reached a pretty high number, over 2% per year, and it's now come way, way down. Now, 11 billion people still a lot, but the good news is that the faster we improve health, the faster family size goes down, and so we can feel great about saving those lives. How the hell would any one entity know certainly how many people there are everywhere in the world? Think about mm. what it would take to do that. Does everywhere have a sentence, census? Does everywhere, you know, think about what we're saying here. And one of the biggest problems with the time we live in is theories. And mm. that's why I made up my law of theories. Basically, my law of theories I created to help myself deal with problems that I'm having a hard time coming to terms with. A theory is a thing that becomes less valuable the longer it is not a law. And at some point, it is so valueless, it becomes basically, mostly, from what I observe, used for scientism, mm -hmm. which is basically the religious aspect of science, not science proper, that follows protocols with a, an absolute intent in coming to something of value, or what we might call truth, or something known, certainly. <clears throat> and I so love these... I'm sorry, I didn't don't mean to interrupt. We're just gonna have to accept we're gonna step on each other because there is a slight delay. Um, but I was gonna say scientism was one thing I discovered in college like 10 years ago. Um, I didn't know that was a thing until I was reading, I think C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton, one of the two, both of them identified it uh as being the chief enemy of the human race. And I actually did a reading of the machine stops uh for my show, and I think people were like, well, what the hell was that all about? I'm like, that's the future, guys. Uh, transhumanism and scientism. Uh, Crow, would you like to expand more on that? Specifically, which one? Let's go with uh, scientism for now, since that's what you were on. So scientism is an aberration. And the reason it's happened is because of corporation and wealthy, wealthy people. Basically, we're at a point now where universities research what they get paid to research. In other words, they're going to get granted, gifted, given money, but it controls what they do. The Universities in this country were taken over so far ago. We did research on it. I mean, by the time World War II was here, it was already well underway. Everybody knows the names Rockefeller, Carnegie, you know, the robber baron kind of people. Um, that's the problem right there. It's not people saying, hey, man, there's this problem in the world. Let's work together. Let's solve it. What it is, is we'd like to get some money and we'll do whatever the hell you tell us. And by the way, every time you give the money, there's strings attached. So in these problems that we face, what I do is I make up like at one point when I was filming through my telescopes, everyone was screaming, those are aliens. And I'd finally had enough. So I did a few things. I got an optics expert to lay down the math to prove that everything I had shot was within our atmosphere and not that far from me. And then I made up my law of HD, which was made for me to be able to think critically, 
And basically my law of HD says anything that truly exists that can be filmed in high definition will be filmed in high definition. Now, if you extrapolate that out, if Bigfoot exists, it doesn't matter. I can't accept it. Until that undeniable HD footage is provided, even if it's real, I would rather be wrong than accept it. The problem for us now, of course, is that video can make things from scratch that, that we have no idea. And this brought me to my law of theories because I began realizing as I looked at things like gravity, gravity is actually, truthfully, it's a theory based on a theory. Well, why isn't it a law by now? So I sat down and I wrote this. Any theory that remains unproven for years is a speculation of diminishing value and will therefore tend to be applied as propaganda in support of scientism the longer it exists. Now, these foundational ideas mesh with my idea of compassion is paramount. Respect for all life is paramount. When you do this, when you frame actual values into the way you think about things, then whether you're right or wrong, at least you've done it with a good heart. So even if you're in error, you're not damaging per se, not with intent anyhow. And so when we begin to think of scientism, the biggest example I can think of is go to any university in this country and what they're doing is living on big ass gifts from rich sources who have put earmarks on what they will study and what, you know, what, how can it be that we don't have a cure for cancer? As an example, Charlotte Gerson's dad, Max Gerson, announced a cure for cancer in the 30s, which was outlawed three months later. And guess what he did it with? Carrot and apple juice, lettuce juice which is now illegal to treat cancer in that way, which is why the Gerson method has to be taught in Tijuana, Mexico is the closest version to our country. That is scientism. Mm. Scientists would have said, wow, Max, with organic plants, you can beat most kinds of cancer and flushing out the liver with a coffee enema. That's amazing, Max. Let's look into this. Not sorry, Charlie. Pharmaceuticals are pissed off. This is now against the law and you better get your, your, your method out of this country or we'll arrest you. Hmm. Another aspect. So, oh, go ahead, George. I'm going to say, so as, we're, as long as we're on this sort of the topic of what is science and scientism, I, I only learned this relatively recently while I was doing some research for something else. But do you know what the actual etymology all the way back of science is? No, that's an interesting question because I'm big on words have meaning. So lay it down. I don't think I've ever done the etymology on science. So most people only take it back one level uh, to Latin, um, scio, sciere, to know, and the passive par uh, perfect passive participle, scientum, so a thing that has been known. And like that doesn't really help us. Like, okay, it's something you know. But if you actually take it back a step further, um, well, several steps further, all the way back to Indo-European, you get this root, sce which is the what where that Latin word comes from. And what ske means is actually to cut up something. And you can see that in um, some Latin words, skindere, to cut, where we get scissors from. Uh, in the Greek, schizane, uh, to cut apart, which is someone who is schizophrenic, has their phrenes, which is your sort of mental power, intuition, personality, cut. Um, that's where we get it from. Science, something that is actually skientum, if you take it back etymology, etymologically, is something you have been able to actually cut open and look at from every angle and see every particular of it, not just sort of a, a you know, a mental, 
I know this. It's not science isn't just I have applied an idea, a theory to something. It actually means that you have actually been able to cut something open and look at it from every possible angle. Then you've applied all your senses to it to really know it. Yeah, look at the giant brain on George, man. And by the way, you started with the the the, the earliest permutation. Your foundation was to know. So I'm with you all day long. This is not scientism. It has no intention of knowing anything. What it usually does is it wants an outcome, so it protects the outcome and it skews things to have the outcome remain. And I would say a thing here, but I don't know much about your audience, and I don't want them to think I'm crazy. But I'll just say this. Gravity is a theory based on a theory. So what's the problem here? Let's turn that into a law, boys. And by the way, the Big Bang. Here, here's how scientism works. Scientism gets into the mainstream accepted narrative, and it does things like name a TV show, The Big Bang Theory, so that everybody in the world has been programmed with their Big Bang idea. Did you know the laws of thermodynamics prove that the Big Bang is impossible? Did you know you can go get textbooks today and learn about the Big Bang? So how is it that we've had laws? I don't even know. Do you know, George, how old is the law of thermodynamics? It's got to be 100 years or more, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, Isaac, Isaac Newton, so several hundred years. So there you go. Um, and so these laws prove the Big Bang is bunk, and yet it's in our books. And they're naming TV shows to push the idea to the lips of every person. By the way, one of the biggest shows at one time uh, in the world for like a decade. That's how scientism works. And that is how corporation works with scientism to co-opt the entertainment industry to basically do a mini hack on your brain because everybody reads Big Bang Theory every day or says it or talks about it. Well, if I can sort of um, pull together a couple of the the streams we've, we've dipped into here with the, the nature and the knowing and the science and stuff. I think this is why there has been what, at least to me, seems like a, a pretty concerted effort to put up barriers between humanity and nature, because that knowing, that, that skein, that actually being able to really cut something up to know it, that is a exercise of the senses and just thinking back to Aristotle, who I think was probably right when he talked about how you know things, how knowledge is gained. It's those senses that give you the only really proper knowledge of something. Everything else that you build on that information from the senses are, you know, second, third, fourth orders of knowledge are not as sure and not as certain as those foundational sensory experiences like you mentioned in the beginning and i think that people are much easier to control much easier to rule much easier to make them think the way you want to think if you have made them unsure whether they can actually trust their own sensory experience because if they can't if they don't trust their own sensory experience they're not going to be able to formulate ideas based on their own experience. And I think that's why I've always thought this whole we live in a simulation thing was a psyop, because what that is telling you is that you cannot trust the single most basic sensory element of your experience, which is touch. Touch is the most basic sense because it's completely unmediated. You know, vision is mediated by light, allegedly. Sound is me you know mediated through air, but touch is a completely unmediated sensory experience of reality. And I think that by undermining the idea that you can really gain knowledge about something through your senses, you 
basically create drones who you are much more easily able to influence and control. Right. And, and this, this nonsensical, uh, and by the way, I want to say, uh, loving how you broke down science because you started it knowing and then basically where you went was to observe. So if you were to put it in the common dialectic, it would be to observe to know, right? Um, that would be that I love that definition. But to get back to the 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 simulation theory, you don't matter mm -hmm. if you want to accept all that nonsense. And by the way, it's impossible to prove one way or another unless in if you can interrupt the simulation. How else mm -hmm. would you ever be able to prove it? But at the main point is what it undermines is the spiritual nature of what it means to be a living man or a living woman. That's what the matrix allowed for, right? No one exactly. would buy simulation theory, which is poppycock in my ears, yeah. if it hadn't been for the matrix. And there is scientism using media to further its agenda to get you to believe in things you shouldn't. And at the end of the day, you go ahead and show me a successful culture or individuals in this world that were not questioning the spiritual aspects of what it means to be a living man or a living woman. And by the way, you want to go back down to Greece. That is, as far as I am aware, one of the tightliest connected cultures to nature. I went so far as to break down the Iliad, which I received nasty grams from professors of classic literature because I had the audacious idea to say that as an example, when Ajax was killed in the Iliad, Ajax the greater, I think it is, or he kills himself, when his blood hit the ground, a hyacinth sprung up and I informed everybody. They just told you what time of year it was. And even though there is some question whether it was hyacinth or other plant, doesn't matter. Whatever the correct plant that was originally notified told you what time of year it was, not only that, the color of the bloom on that plant had an additional meaning. If it was a hyacinth, I'm guessing it's purple because these are the princes of men that you know the names of in places like the Iliad. They're from good families, right? So it would make sense. But then these professors came and said, Crow, you don't know your butt from a hole in the ground. Well, what's interesting is years after I did that, Fortune to St. Germain came along and said, no, you were right. And I'll invite all those people to come on and debate me and tell me why you were wrong if they do it in perfect latin or greek to prove their chops and so here we have a common sense observation from a man who can speak neither latin or greek ironically i'm half greek <laughs> um, but it's clear when you get back to the value of the natural world your thinking allows to recognize what was just imparted to me well, wait a minute a plant blooms when a plant blooms a plant is a color that it is a color as a matter of fact in Victorian times, they were publishing all these books. They're such gorgeous books. And it showed the meaning of every flower you could hand to someone. The color had a meaning. The species had a meaning. In other words, in that period of time, if you handed someone a flower, you were saying some things and they knew what you were saying. Think of how far we've fallen from those days. And not only that, they would have been closer to nature in those times. I mean, I don't know how much a greenhouse played a role in Victorian times. I'm guessing it did to some degree, but mostly those plants would have been seasonal if they were commonly in, in mass production. And actually, I don't know that's true because then there's the whole tulip conundrum, right? <laughs> the, the, the whole stock market built on tulips was earlier than that, I believe. Mm, yeah. Actually, you said something that sort of uh, triggered something in my brain when you said that you are nothing as a sort of a mindset that is a, that they're attempting to enforce and that 
made me think of the way that because as humans, we have to express our ideas through language and language is, a, is an art and it is not a, you know, it's, it's not sort of math. There is ambiguity and nuance. And if you're good at, well, really propaganda, you can manipulate that nuance to affect a certain end. And it made me think of atoms. So atoms allegedly are, you know, what, like 99.9% empty space, right? So they say. Yeah, so they say. And I think that it's not by accident that when atomic theory got sort of mainstream and people found out about atoms and, you know, about how they're mostly empty space, you really saw a major upswing in a sort of popular version of uh, of nihilism. You are nothing because they they sort of manipulated the, the ambiguity inherent in certain language to make people doubt the realities of their own senses. Because on a very basic sensory level, I know that people aren't nothing. I've punched people in the face. I've been <laughs> punched in the face. Like there's, there's reality there. Like I know that I'm not nothing. I can, I can attest to that from the full range of my sensory experience. And I know other people aren't nothing either, but by taking this, uh, alleged i'm just i'm just going to i'm going to stipulate that atoms are real i don't know that but i'm going to just for the sake of this i'm going to stipulate that that is true and they're 99.9 whatever percent empty space and putting that out there in a certain way i think they were encouraging people to not really trust the products of their own sensory experience perfect and i love the way you put that about atoms because that shows the era folks like us are going to yeah, I've been told about atoms my whole life, but I haven't figured out a way to test it yet. So I've got it in my back pocket. We can use that moniker to talk about it. But if you want me to believe it, I'm going to need something more. And that leads me into one of the one of the shows that I did that got blowback was I basically proved to my satisfaction that nuclear bombs don't exist as described. And people lost their minds. But interestingly enough, it became one of the most watched and repeated shows and then one day someone questioned me on it and i was searching my brain for a way to demonstrate and then i i hit on it i said well nuclear weapons they there's all this radiation right and radiation destroys cells right we all know that's what happens the half-life used to be when i was young the half-life was a hell of a lot longer than it is now but the half-life is supposed to be a long long time and even the half-life you're not supposed to be able to live in in most cases and what I said was, I've been in Hiroshima. Never has there been a time in history since its population where there wasn't drinkable water, human beings, plants, and animals all made of cells. That is proof alone that nuclear weapons do not exist as described. And then when you start going further down the road to find out they cleverly let one AP press guy in who was actually a, an agent, a CIA or OSI, I forget what he was. Um, he, that was the point of view everyone got, those pictures everyone got. I was trained in the Marine Corps that, oh, there's still walls in Hiroshima where someone got tattooed to the wall because they were too close to ground zero. These things aren't true. And they're provably not true. And yet I have seen so many movies in my life that prove to me nuclear weapons are real. It is such a common part of the dialectic that people are not doing what I just so geniusly saw George do. He said, allegedly, mm -hmm. I know what's been said about this. I'm not sure I can prove it to my own senses to know for a fact 
So we'll talk about it, but I'm putting their definition in my back pocket until proof that I can deal with comes along. And this is the age we are. If you, know you just, just heard what if I, you I'm just so heard, sorry. Yeah, if you just heard what I said and you closed your mind, think about why that may be. Because maybe what I said was a thing you should be thinking very carefully about. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say that the whole, now that I'm thinking about it, the whole nuclear thing, I'm thinking about the propaganda surrounding that. Like we laugh at the duck and cover videos, right? We're like, oh, look, there's a little turtle singing about duck and cover. Which and would help like, nobody. Right. right? And if, everyone's if like, oh, that wouldn't, that wouldn't help anybody. And I'm like, that feels almost like this, the mask. Right. In a way, it's it like is. the same kind of programming, like everybody do your useless thing, fall in line. And then maybe the super dangerous, invisible thing won't get you. And there it is. Kinda... The, the invisible thing. Yeah. In this in this era. And, and that's why I appreciated George saying allegedly, I can't see an atom. It's all the invisible things that make for all these narratives that we're supposed to accept as fact. Like when I breathe out, there's these things that'll make you sick and a person can kill a person. For some reason, there's been people since the beginning of time. But now, if a person touches a person, it'll kill you by this invisible thing. I remember this movie. I think Harrison Ford was in it. And they were trying to convince these natives in the Amazon that there were these little things called germs they needed to wash off with soap. And they wouldn't have any of it. Because they were too close to nature, their senses, and common sense. And if germs were something to worry about, why wouldn't they be dropping dead all the time because of these germs of, that they were be being told about? But I have noticed that much of the propaganda that comes to us now is based on invisible things like radiation that you can't see. And by the way, for anyone listening, did you know that any explosion of sufficient size creates a mushroom cloud? And I, after I did that episode, some brilliant people went out and amassed all the mushroom cloud footage there is and they put them side by side by side it does not hold up to scrutiny mm. so what got me going is i started thinking is this a creation is there a creator what kind of a creator would be that be if the little ants on the surface of the creation could push a magical red button and end his creation that's mm. how i initially began to think about it and so then i dove in and I looked at the facts and from the get-go, it was problem after problem. And there's, there's more kind of a cult side to it, but I'll leave that out. Hmm. Yeah. And just, I would ahead, add George. just the, the historical note here is once again, I don't, I don't know very much about nuclear weapons, but I do know that one could certainly inflict the sort of levels of damage and devastation which are attributed attributed to nuclear weapons with plenty of other conventional arms i mean look at look at dresden or darmstadt or any of those like you don't need that in order to explain well how did they how did they kill things with kill us so many people with bombs you can do you can do that with without needing nuclear with weapons. just fire bombs or napalm yeah. you can do yeah. that right that's been yeah. around for a long time the craziest thing about it is this is something we discussed with Jason last week. It's like the more shocking some a lie is, the easier it is to believe because you're like, what they couldn't be that twisted. They wouldn't make that up. Like they wouldn't say that they have a bomb that can wipe out an entire state or something like that. If they didn't have it, that's too crazy. What do you think about that? I think that when you hear a thing, you should immediately apply common sense and quit giving magical science and magical technology more due than you can comprehend apply common sense and base it in the natural world where there is no lie 
and look at it. Does this appear to be a magic trick that I'm about to believe in? Because if it does, don't accept it. You know, you go, I used to tell a tale about, remember the white tiger fly across the stage in Las Vegas? They say about a third of the people would go, oh my God, I just saw a white tiger fly across the stage. A third of the people would say, how the hell did they do that? That is a clever trick. And a third of the people would be going, I don't know what just happened here. You know, mm-hmm. but if you went in there with common sense, you would first understand white tigers don't fly. Secondarily, you would comprehend that the white tigers on a stage where theater occurs, you know. So even if you knew nothing, common sense would allow you to know that it was illusory what you just experienced. And so much of science is an illusion now. They have you so boondoggled that they have so much more power than they actually do. The scary part is the data. Now, the data. I don't know what we're going to do about the data. People think when they go on a search engine right now that the search engine is actively trying to give them a helpful return. It's not what it's doing. A psychological profile has been built on on, on all the data you've given up. And what it wants to do, the algorithms, because I don't accept AI is ever going to be alive, so I call them what they are, their code, their algorithms, um, they want to get as many clicks out of you as they can. And since they can easily roughly calculate how many seconds are in your life, their goal is to get every one of those seconds they can on a click. That's what a search engine is about now. But here's the scary part. Any major corporation with significant data on you can predict to a 98% certainty, and this has been true for over a decade now, what will kill you the minute it will happen, the geography you will be in, and the, the group of people that puts you in. Will you ever know in advance what's going to kill you or where you'll be or what time of day it will be? They, there was recently a movie where they made fun of this fact, but Shoshana Zuboff wrote a very mainstreamy book called Surveillance Capitalism, but she hit on the head what the truth of was the reach of the data and the technology. And she explained the AI, the so-called AI war where we want to beat checkers guy, eventually do it. We want to beat chess guy, had a hard time, but we eventually do it. We're going to use some entertainment now and trot out deep blue on Alex Trebek's Jeopardy so everyone can see how powerful our tech is. And then here comes the gold standard. We're going to get AI, what they call AI, what I call algorithms, to beat a Go master. Go is that little Asian game with the black and white pebbles whole lot of them from the get-go. There's infinitely more moves than in a chess game. And they couldn't do it. They kept trying and trying, couldn't beat the Go Master. Then one of the programmers said, hey, I got an idea. Let's get all the human beings involved with this out and give the algorithm permission to make new algorithms to solve individual problems. So in other words, let's let the AI loose and let the AI make more AI to solve problems along the way. It took them 72 hours to beat a Go Master. So the data is the problem of our era, and it gives them a bit of a time machine. And so whenever you see ridiculous things like we're having a global warming lockdown, I would bet dollars to donuts they've already modeled it on a computer somewhere to try to predict its outcome before they do it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. One would imagine. Yeah, it's it can be distressing to think about these things, but um you know, I think it's important to have conversations where we discuss these things because, you know, the mainstream people are not going to be talking about this because they're a part of it, right? Like that's what they're there for is to warp your mind. 
Right. And that's part of why, you know, going back to why we started doing this, these podcasts is because we know that they're just going to give people false information and they don't have our best interest in mind. But we know that we have the best interest in mind of the people who listen to us. Um, so it's kind of our job to stand up and say, hey, we see this, you know, and it's sort of shocking how much of an impact that that can actually make, even if you're just a teeny tiny little podcaster. It's quite important how you try to make that communication. It's quite important how you go about it. What I did is I came to the, the reality. I don't control anyone else's minds. I, I can't make decisions for anyone but myself. And once I knew that, I had an idea of what to do. I can demonstrate things that I think are correct to others, and they can examine them and find value or throw it away. It's up to them. It's not up to me. So I have to do the best job I can to try to make it compelling and interesting in a way that someone would pay attention to. Um, it's, it's a strange time we're in, but for all the people caught in the red blue mind trap, fair warning, you better wake up quick. Yeah, that's a, that's a big one. I, I wanted to ask your opinion because George already knows mine on voting, but I don't think they count the votes. And do you have a different opinion on that? No, I have some facts I can lay down. Please do. No president has ever been sat by voting from the people. The Electoral College seats presidents. What you are doing when you go out to so-called vote is you're being polled. There are at least five examples I'm aware of of the popular vote being given to the person who was not seated. I think Donald Trump was such a case. Not sure, but I think. So basically, if you know, you can look it up. If you don't believe what I just said is I invite you to go look up the Electoral College seats presidents. Your vote does nothing to seat a president. And if you read otherwise, go look up the five or six that have been seated who got the popular vote and then were not made president. And by the way, we have examples. One, one guy was Gar uh, Benjamin, Benjamin Harrison. Is that right? Benjamin Harrison was one of those guys who did not get the popular vote and was seated, I think. Guess who his descendants are? The geniuses who run the TV show called Pawn Stars unbelievable <laughs> if you're involved in this you're being boondoggled and what's worse is i just told you the truth you can look it up your vote does nothing and by joining the voter rolls you are accepting things that i'm pretty sure you wouldn't accept if you knew what you were accepting you're accepting a system that is corrupt you're accepting a system that has devalued you for generations you're accepting a system that slaves you out to basically a corporate or hierarchical agenda, people that are far above that you'll never know the names of, ancient families, probably. It's just crazy how, you know, even in the, you know, age of consent or the age of information or the age of deception or whatever this is, like, you can still learn a lot. You just have to have the care to look, right? And right. I know for me, like, I had this faint idea that history would be a good thing to learn more about. And I had this faint idea I'd like to start a podcast at some point. So I was like, I'll just do a history podcast, do my own research and just write it down and then make it funny. And that's what, that'll be my whole show. But at this point in the game, you know, we've been doing, we've been doing almost exclusively interviews on the show because it's, it's almost time to stop looking back and start looking at now. That's a, that is a salient observation. We're in deep water. We're in trouble. We're in critical mass right now. And the game's not over. 
And this could be ended quickly at any time by people quit accepting what authority tells you to do. You show me the damn law. Show it to me. Show it to my face. We are a nation of laws. If you can't show me that, then get out of my face. Other than that, you are allowing a world takeover to happen. And where they want to go is universal basic income. Where they want to go is a vaccine passport. Where they want to go is to electric cars that have a limit of 150 miles till you got to get a charge with a kill switch in them. That law's already been passed. Where they want to go is total control of money where you get paid by them and you have two weeks to spend it before it disappears. No savings account, no inheritance to the children and by proxy, no ownership of anything. That's where we are now. And if you want to sit around with your head in the sand, well, then I guess prosperity or posterity will remember what you contributed in this time. This is a critical, critical juncture. And we have the power to do better. All of us do. But first of all, you got to care about other human beings. Secondarily, you probably need to care about the creation to take a step forward, to push back against the synthetic nonsense. And since I've got to go pretty quick, I'll leave you with this idea. The creation is perfect from my point of view. No man or woman in the world can replicate it. They can't make a fish from scratch. They can't make an oak tree. They can't make any of it from scratch. So what they have done is they've made a synthetic world, this technical world. And since the rules of trust, which are applied to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even in religion, the creator made it, the creator owns it. The technology that's been created, in fact, makes them God of the technology. They're trying to separate you from the natural world, pull you into being addicted or requiring their synthetic systems of which they will be basically gods. There it is. If you can't recognize the truth in what I've told you, think about it. If you care what your grandchildren might face, think about it. If you care what your children are going to inherit from our generation, and by the way, if you have children, here's the starkest reality of all. You are quite fortunate because I am told birth rate is down something like 60%. And that's only men. Hmm. Children George. of men, the movie, is that coming to be? Oh, Anyone? yeah. Yeah. George, uh, last shot before we let Crow go. Uh, oh. Wow, now you're now you're just putting now you're just putting the pressure on me. But no, I really I really like the way you you phrased that about yeah, may the the creator owns the creation. I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms as applied to the the fake creation that they're trying to put us into. Ready Player One, good example. Mm, yeah. Yep. So I'll give this idea: learn about trusts because they have a lot to teach you and. Christianity, where most of us were brought up in the West, there would be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is the creator, right? He created this. He's the owner of it. Um, then there has to be a beneficiary, and there has to be a trustee. Never do you want to be the trustee. Trustee has to do all the things and take all the responsibility and take all the bad side. You want to be beneficiary. The creator made you beneficiary of this creation, but unfortunately, we've all drifted away. And we've made agreements with birth certificates and other things. Your birth certificate makes you a trustee. When you walk into a courtroom, you are a trustee. And yet, it has always been your right to claim 
beneficiary ship, if that's the right word. When you start to grasp these universal ideas and apply them to your, your religious ideas, or apply them to your social, to your legal ideas, then you begin to realize that each of us has been given freedom, but it's as only as good as the person who will claim it and then defend it. Because if you don't do either one of those things, you're not free. You're basically a slave if you don't do either of those two things. Anyhow, I want to thank you guys so much. Um, I've got to get on the road, my friends. George, it was so great to meet you, man. You, you got an impressive mind there, my friend. <laughs> Thanks. No, it was great. It was great to meet you. It's not every day you get to meet a crow behind a microphone. So, <laughs> <laughs> Corvus Micus. <laughs> Thanks so much, Crow. Thanks so much for showing up. And you know, George does do interviews, so you might think about inviting him on your show. I'm just saying. But um, really, do you go out and do interviews, George? I, I could be convinced. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, well, Aaron, it was really great to meet you. And I guess I'd like to offer you guys a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Thanks so much. Is the enemy of knowing.